Hello and welcome to Psychology in Seattle. I'm your host, Kirk Honda, licensed therapist. It's just me today. I thought I would dive into the negative therapeutic reaction. In my efforts to help therapists with their work, I have investigated several topics related to treatment failure, and the negative therapeutic reaction was one of those topics. But first, a little disclaimer. I am by no means a Freudian or psychoanalytic scholar. As a psychodynamic therapist and professor, I have studied the history of psychoanalysis, but not to the extent that would make me an expert. Also, another disclaimer, I am in no way going to be able to summarize every nuance and tributary of this topic that I know of. Almost every topic related to psychoanalysis and psychodynamic theory has been expanded upon by many, many authors over you know the past 110 years or so. Um, some of them are brilliant, and some of them are strange, and some of them are both, and some of them are not so brilliant or strange. And so it's a complex area that is difficult to summarize very quickly, but I will attempt to provide a useful summary. Okay, so, um, so first off, I have a few questions for you. Is it possible for psychotherapy to always succeed? If psychotherapy helps someone, then the therapist is likely to attribute that success to the therapy or to the therapist, him or herself. Uh, but what if therapy doesn't work? What if a client's symptoms get worse? Treatment failure has been a sore subject for therapists since the beginning of the profession. It's rarely discussed. Um, personally, I attribute this lack of discussion to the self-serving attitudes of those in my field. It's so much easier to blame others when we fail, right? But before I get more into that area, let's take a trip down history lane, okay? All right, so in an attempt to understand why some of his patients were getting worse with psychoanalysis, Sigmund Freud first coined the term negative therapeutic reaction in the early part of the 20th century. When, when Freud thought he was providing correct interpretations of patients' material, he was doing good work with therapy as he saw it, and the patient's symptoms increased, he considered this a negative therapeutic reaction. He considered it a reaction against good therapy. It was a, a negative reaction to therapy. And he coined the term negative therapeutic reaction. He believed these negative therapeutic reactions were most frequently due to Oedipal guilt over sexual and aggressive impulses and that the clients masochistically did not feel they deserved a better life. So going into more detail... Um, in order to understand Oedipal guilt, I would have to talk for a long time on the topic. But in a nutshell, Freud believed that young boys want to sexually join with their mother and they compete with their fathers for their mother's affection. The boys feel angry and jealousy towards their fathers. And conversely, young girls want to join with their father and compete with their mothers. In other words, Freud believed that all children in all cultures in all times feel like they are in competition with their same-sex parent for the possession of their opposite-sex parent. If this sounds weird, it's because it is weird. But strangely, this view held sway among many in my field for decades. Even today, I come across people who believe in this philosophy. Um, I don't think they're stupid. I guess I'm just curious about how this view manifests itself in therapy with clients. In The Ego and the Id, which I've been reading lately, Freud wrote that if the Oedipus complex is not resolved well, if the boy does not work through his feelings effectively, if he doesn't identify with his father and accept that he is not the center of his mother's universe, he will repress his anger and jealousy, 
This pushes his drives underground, only to emerge in the guise of pathology later on. All the while, the boy is unconsciously guilty for having these feelings, these feelings of anger and jealousy that he hasn't worked through yet. It is this guilt that Freud blamed some of his treatment failures on. When some of his patients, particularly the Wolfman, I believe, got worse through psychoanalysis, Freud formulated that they were unconsciously guilty about their anger and jealousy. So they masochistically prevented psychoanalysis from helping them. They punished themselves for being a bad child by making their symptoms increase rather than decrease. Aside from Oedipal guilt, Freud also viewed the phenomenon of getting worse in analysis as a result of secondary gain. Secondary gain is the incidental advantage derived from an illness. Some people make themselves ill to get the benefits thereof. For instance, if if you are lonely, you might fake an illness to get sympathy from others, right? But a distinction should be made between secondary gain and malingering. Secondary gain is different from malingering in that malingering is conscious and secondary gain is mostly unconscious. So, so Freud believed that some patients who got worse through therapy were unconsciously staying sick for some secondary gain, like sympathy from others. All right, well, that's how Freud saw it. Now let's move on to Karen Horney. Karen Horney was a contemporary of Freud's, uh, a German psychoanalyst who is known for questioning Freud's views. She wrote in the 1930s uh, that she experienced patients who, after a real elucidation of some problem, in other words, she was providing what she considered to be good therapy, these patients showed an increase in symptoms, or they became discouraged, or they wished to break off treatment, even though she expected them to feel relief. She felt good about the therapy, and yet the patient got worse. So Karen Horney diverged from Freud's formulation of Oedipal guilt as a cause of this by emphasizing culture and society instead. She believed that patients were taught via culture to compete and have rivalries and would therefore react negatively and competitively to good interpretations by the analyst. Uh, she believed that our society or her society in Germany in the, in the 30s or you know, early part of the 20th century was highly competitive and promoted competitiveness and that this caused a lot of problems in, in people and consequently needed to be treated in psychoanalysis. So due to this pathological competitiveness, the patient does not want the analyst to feel successful and will therefore sabotage the therapy. In other words, Horn, I believe that because we are socialized to be competitive with others, we compete with our therapists and enter into an unconscious power struggle with the patient trying to stay sick and the therapist trying to cure the patient, and this competitiveness makes the patient dig their heels in. Karen Horn, I also asserted that patients remain sick because they believe if they achieve success... They will incur the same sort of rage and envy they feel toward the success of other persons. In other words, she believed that some patients don't want to be the target of schadenfreude and they stay sick so others won't be jealous of them and won't be angry at them for getting better. All right, so let's move on to Melanie Klein. Um, Again, we're still in the early 1900s. Klein diverged from Freud by contending that the negative therapeutic reaction was rooted not in Oedipal guilt, but in the envious destruction of the good breast. Um, Yes, I said breast. Uh, For those of you who are unfamiliar with Klein and early object relations speak, 
You heard me right. I said the good breast. Maybe I should explain Klein's theory before moving forward. As I mentioned earlier, I cannot quickly summarize all the nuances of these theories, so just know that. Um, some, some scholars spend their entire career studying just one aspect of one therapist, one theorist. Um, the life and times of Melanie Klein and object relations theory are extremely complex, and I find myself often confused by her writing. Um, I often rely on other people's interpretation of her writing, even though I am in part an object relations therapist. So having said that, Melanie Klein and her followers believed that internal objects are formed by repeated subjective experience with one's parents. At first, the infant perceives the mother in parts, uh, her face, her hands, her breast, and so on. The breast that provides satiating milk for the hungry child is the good breast, quote unquote, good breast. And when the hungry infant is not provided the good breast, the angry and distressed infant blames the bad breast, which is an imagined hallucinated breast that does not actually exist, except within the infant's psyche. So, so Klein believed that children are ambivalent of their extreme dependence on the good breast for needed nourishment, safety, and pleasure. Since the good breast sometimes denies pleasure, children develop oral greed and aggressive resentment toward the good breast. This results in the child projecting hate and humiliation into the good breast, which in turn results in the child feeling guilt and worthlessness. It gets a little complicated, and again, I don't have a lot of time to go into this, but anyway. Um, patients stuck in this developmental phase as a result of this infantile complication cannot tolerate the possibility that an analyst might be able to help them, and they will sabotage the analysis by hating and humiliating the analyst. This was Klein's formulation of the negative therapeutic reaction. In other words, Klein believed that when a patient gets worse in therapy, the patient was likely neglected by the mother, making the patient greedy and resentful toward the mother, which resulted in the patient feeling unworthy of love and guilty for being angry toward the mother, which creates particular structures within the person's personality, ongoing structures, which eventually leads to the patient sabotaging the nurturing therapist. I'm not sure if Kleinian purists would agree with my take on it, but that's how I would say it in contemporary common lingo. So what about contemporary writers? Um, um, I'm skipping over, you know, again, several authors and, and theorists and philosophers about this topic, but um, what about contemporary writers? What, what do they think about the negative therapeutic reaction? How, how do they formulate clients who get worse from therapy? Well, Faye Newsom, Faye Newsom, a contemporary analyst and professor, added to the concept of the negative therapeutic reaction in her 2004 article by focusing on the insights of countertransference. Hmm. Maybe I should do a podcast on countertransference. What do you say? That would be fun. So let me know if you'd like me to do a podcast on countertransference, since it would be along the same lines as this, as this podcast. And if you find this one to be either enjoyable or boring, let me know so I don't um, bore you. <laughs> um, anyway, Newsom asserts that when an analyst begins to feel judgment about the patient's lack of progress, um, when, the, when the analyst begins to judge the client for not progressing, this is a projection of the, of the patient's belief about him or herself. So, so this is a shift from the view of Freud, Horney, and Klein. Uh, Freud, Horney, and Klein, and other 
classic theorists tended to not question their objectivity. If they thought a patient was not getting worse, then that was irrefutable fact. Their judgments were rarely questioned by themselves. However, Faye Newsom, along with many contemporary thinkers, think that th- that we should question our quote-unquote objectivity. Newsom asserts that the therapist's judgment that therapy is not working may be a result of countertransference, and it's the therapist's job to analyze that. So according to Newsom, when a therapist begins to judge the client for not getting better, which is countertransference, the therapist should become aware of this feeling, contemplate it, conceive of it as a projected manifestation of the client's self-hatred, and then provide an experience for the client of acceptance and non-judgment, which is therapeutic. In other words, the therapist may have to question the client's assumption that the therapist is emotionally invested in the client getting better. This is intended to make the client feel accepted regardless of getting better, which will hopefully lead to the client getting better in the end. Because sometimes countertransferential judgment might create an impasse to therapy. So, so Newsom also formulates negative therapeutic reactions as secondary gain, similar to Freud, right? When a child is harmed by parents, the child cannot choose new parents, usually. So the child learns to take the good with the bad. Um, they, you know, they don't have a choice. They have to take both the good and the bad of their parents that they have. The good and the bad become intertwined as one experience of love. I'm incorporating a lot of my language into this. This isn't entirely Newsom's language. Therefore, when these harmed children enter therapy as adults, they might not trust a relationship or a personal lifestyle that is without pain and suffering. When some people present trustworthiness to them, they might not trust that. They might um, be wary of it because they've been hurt so many times. These clients unconsciously believe that if they get better in therapy, they will be alone, abandoned by the therapist, which in a way is true since if clients meet their goals, therapy is likely to terminate. But they believe that if they start to get better, that they'll be all alone and no one will pay attention to them since at the very least when they're sick, people are trying to help them. So the client stays sick in order to hold on to the unsatisfying relationship with the therapist because at least it's a relationship. The client is stuck between longing for parental perfection, which doesn't exist, and parental disappointment. Um, Rather than graduating to a position of seeing people as mostly good and sometimes bad, which is what object relationists strive for with their clients. So as we can see, even contemporary writers continue to blame the client for not getting better. Although I agree with these writers partially. They continue to neglect the possibility that they themselves or the mode of therapy or therapy in general might be to blame, which is very consistent with uh, the vast majority of writing in my field, uh, particularly in the past. There's only some writers now that will consider other possibilities other than the other than the client being to blame. So let's move on to another one more contemporary writer, Jeff Goodman. Um, So he, in his 2005 article, asserts that patients who are prone to having negative therapeutic reactions seem to be increasingly common in clinical practice, and these patients pose problems for clinicians who struggle with their feelings of incompetence. Um, His article title begins with Kurt Cobain's lyric, I feel stupid and contagious. I'm guessing it's because he's referring to therapists feeling like they're ineffective and that they're the the bad in them is actually contagious to the patient themselves so already given this quote from kurt cobain we get a sense that we 
um, have a rider from our modern time. Um, as a clinical supervisor, Goodman has seen novice clinicians become demoralized when patients get worse and terminate early. He writes about his own sense of inadequacy when one of his first patients failed to show signs of improvement. Goodman proposes that patients are prone to making clinicians feel unjustifiably demoralized. He asserts that these feelings of incompetence derive from both the patient and the clinician, not just the patient. Goodman is consistent with the classical literature in that he believes patients who exhibit negative therapeutic reactions experience intense unconscious guilt over their aggression toward their loved internal objects. So Goodman agrees with much of what I've already discussed. Um, but he also quotes from Otto Kernberg's assertion that some patients project their weak and submerged self-aspects into the therapist and then attack the therapist for reasons that were originally self-directed. In other words, the client had internalized during childhood a relational representation of being hurt by others for being weak and ineffective. And this internal relational representation becomes difficult for the person to tolerate within the self, creating distress and negative self-talk. And when the person enters therapy, the patient projects the hurt and ineffective aspect into the therapist while identifying with the hurtful aspect of the dyad, making the therapist feel bad about him or herself which reinforces whatever masochistic traits the therapist may still retain within him or herself. So, so here we have the introduction of the therapist's psyche into the equation. Rather than simply looking at the patient's psyche, um, so, so in the very beginning, we have people only looking at the patient's psyche, the patient's unconscious as a cause for a client to remain sick or get worse through therapy. And then we have this shift to saying, well, maybe it's not just the patient. Maybe the patient is actually creating this, this dynamic between the therapist and the client that, that involves the therapist, but isn't generated from the therapist. It's purely generated from the patient and the therapist gets wrapped up in it. And then this third position we find the introduction of the idea that the therapist might even generate the issues that lead to a negative therapeutic reaction. So in this way, Goodman adds that clinicians are also vulnerable to projecting damaged internal representations into the patient, making it difficult to determine whether a treatment failure is due to the client or the therapist or both. Since the client and the therapist are both projecting these internalized childhood relational representations, we can never really know the genesis of the negative therapeutic reaction. But either way, this often leads to treatment failure and early termination of therapy, unless the therapist can get a hold of the situation, which is what Goodman is trying to help people to do. So we can see that rather recently, some writers are beginning to admit that they might be the cause, they themselves as clinicians might be the cause of treatment failure. It's... Um, you know, it's, it's a frightening admission, but I find it a much more accurate perspective and a bit liberating, too, in that if we admit our shortcomings, we no longer have to hide within the absurd idea that we therapists are perfect. Um, it's, it's liberating to accept our whole selves, right? You know, we're whole individuals that have faults. Isn't that the goal of psychodynamic and object relations therapy, to accept the good and the bad in us and others? And if we can't do that ourselves as therapists, then how can we expect our clients to do so as well? And, and often I find that therapists have a hard time with this. Some, some therapists um, actually have an easier time with it. 
but in my supervision of people, I find that some therapists have a, have a very difficult time sitting with the possibility that they have faults as clinicians. It's so intolerable to them. It's so scary to them that they go into denial and have elaborate defensive mechanisms to protect themselves from this idea. And as a supervisor, as I'm talking to them, it's frustrating to me because I have to soothe these defenses. And sometimes it's not possible for me to do or I'm ineffective at doing so. And so we um, have a hard time discussing uh, their own faults. Uh, I usually try to lead by example and talk about my own faults and, and uh, model how to um, accept myself for who I am. And that sometimes helps, but um, sometimes does not. So what about my practice? Let's, let's get into my practice. Over the past 17 years as a therapist, I've, I've had many different experiences with clients. Um, most of my experience with therapy has been wonderful. I really, really love working with my clients. But sometimes therapy can be difficult. And, and rarely, but, but sometimes, therapy seems to be making matters worse. Or at least that's one hypothesis anyway. Um, one particular client comes to mind. Uh, by the way, wh- whenever I present cases, either on the podcast or otherwise, I, I always mask their identity by changing little details here and there. Um, this is a common practice and it's supposed to keep the main material intact for training purposes while making it difficult for, for even the, the client to identify themselves. So, so anyway, the, the, one particular client comes to mind that this, this client was a young woman suffering from depression and suicidality. Um, given her issues, I provided my style of intersubjective, interpersonal, relational psychodynamic therapy. I I attempted to provide a supportive, empathic relationship and stance with her. Um, I valued her feelings. I encouraged her to explore the feelings about her past and her present. Uh, It was my hope that through the attachment in the therapeutic relationship, she would be fulfilled enough to feel good about herself, better about herself, and more trusting of others and uh, more gravitated toward a healthy and self-satisfactory lifestyle. So, so in session, she would often cry as she thought about being hurt and neglected emotionally by her family. In this, in this way, therapy was intense for her. She worked really hard in therapy for several months. Uh, she was, she was always there on time and, and she always, and she, and she never avoided uh, her material. Uh, so, so in this way, therapy seemed to be working in that she was expressing and accepting her core suppressed feelings, and she was seemingly internalizing our helpful therapeutic relationship. Her, her th- the therapy had all the established markers of good therapy that I know of, that I, that I value, that I privilege. However, after, after some minor successes in the beginning, her symptoms suddenly became dramatically worse. Her depression suddenly increased. Her, her suicidal thoughts reemerged. It was quite worrisome to me, and I didn't know what to do. Uh, long story short, because the course of therapy winded this and that way, but um, long, story short, story, long story short, she had a series of ups and downs for years, and now she's doing much better. Uh, she, uh, currently, she's no longer suffering from depression, and she says that she's enjoying her life and is optimistic about her future. So, so why did she suddenly deteriorate a few years ago? Everything seemed to be going fine, and then boom, she got worse. At the time, there was no identifiable trigger 
um, you know, like um, a breakup with a boyfriend or a fight with her mom or something. There was nothing like that. Um, there was no change in her life that seemed to precipitate it. Um, she didn't uh, change jobs or move or anything. Ultimately, there is no way to know the answer as to what caused the deterioration to happen. But, but one way of formulating the experience is through the lens of the negative therapeutic reaction. According to her, her father was emotionally warm but harmfully neglectful. And her mother was cold to her and narcissistic. Um, on, and on the scale of narcissism, you know, let's say moderate, in that the mother was consumed, uh, mostly consumed with her own issues and did not empathically attend to her daughter. So, so these ongoing experiences with her parents were internalized and eventually became a foundational part of the self, uh, according to my perspective anyway. So, so from the Freudian perspective, we might say that her deterioration in the face of good therapy is a result of her edible guilt. So again, notice here that I'm defining the therapy as good because um, classical Freudian therapists didn't question the therapy very often. They, they had a modality that they practiced and they stood by it. Um, and so we're not. So, so from the Freudian perspective, I'm not going to evaluate whether or not the therapy is good. I'm just going to assume it is. So because she never resolved her Oedipus complex, because she did not uh, effectively identify with her mother and accept that she is not the center of her father's universe, she repressed her anger and jealousy toward her mother and in turn felt guilty for feeling that way. This pushed her aggressive and possessive drives underground. So she then masochistically prevented therapy from helping her. She punished herself for being an angry and jealous child by making therapy not work for her, making her symptoms increase rather than decrease. So from my perspective, if I were to broaden the meaning of the Oedipus complex, this formulation is mostly comfortable for me. She, she definitely had a masochistic streak in her. You probably know someone who's masochistic, someone who is self-destructive, who tends to make a lot of decisions that in the end don't benefit them, and, and you wonder why they make those decisions. Well, I think psychodynamic theory provides an answer for that. In fact, it, it's one of the only theories that provides an answer to it. So, so in regards to her masochistic street, it really saddened me to see her harm herself. Um, at the time, I didn't know she would eventually get better. It seemed like she would never get better. So um, it, it was really sad to see her do that. I'm not sad anymore because I know she's doing well and has been for a long time, so I feel good about it. But moving on to Karen Horney, shall I say the Hornerian perspective, if that's a thing? So from the Hornerian perspective, we would consider the effect of competitiveness within our culture. Due to our culture's promotion of competitiveness, the client did not want me to feel success and therefore sabotage the therapy. She was unconsciously competing with me to see who would win. In this way, she did not want me to succeed by her getting better. This view does not seem to fit the client. I don't know if I'm just not cool with this point of view, which is probable, but it just doesn't seem to fit with her. I, I didn't feel like she was competing with me in this way. She, she could have been, and I guess if I was a Hornerian person, I, 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 would, I could certainly cherry pick for data to, to support this, but, um, but this one doesn't seem to fit with me. All right, so let's briefly look at it at this situation with this client from a Kleinian perspective. Since the client was neglected by her mother, this made the client greedy and resentful toward her mother, which resulted in her feeling unworthy of love and guilty for being angry toward her mother, 
which resulted in particular structures within the client's personality, which led to her projecting internalized elements of her mother into me, seeing me as similarly neglecting as her mother, which made her envious of me and destructive toward me, which led to her sabotaging the therapy with me. Kleinian lingo never really resonates with me, so this explanation doesn't uh, jive so well with my way of seeing people. I don't like the Kleinian envy uh, competitiveness view of the adversarial nature between people. The, the, the language just, just doesn't really resonate with me, as I said. It's, it's not that I, I can't uh, conceive of the possibility that a client would be envious of me unconsciously. Um, that sounds funny. Um, or envious of, of anybody, for that matter. But there's just something about the lingo that just doesn't fit well with me. It seems adversarial. And I think it's just a matter of your point of view. I, I personally think that people are good on the inside and aren't at odds with others unless they're trying to protect themselves. I think we have a drive to connect with others. And when we get scared, that's when things get a little mucked up. Um, so... Um, however, other elements of the Kleinian perspective are very much a part of how I see people. Much of my core theory had its genesis in the Kleinian perspective. Object relations theory emerged from Klein, uh, among others, during her time. Uh, for instance, as you may know from previous podcasts, I rely on the concept of projective identification often in my clinical work and in my personal life. Um, all right. So um, in regards to Newsom's writing, I, c I completely agree that when I began to judge her for not getting better, it prompted me to become aware of these feelings, to contemplate them, to conceive of it as a potential projected manifestation of the client's self-hatred, and then to provide an experience for her of acceptance and non-judgment. This therapeutic position is easy and satisfying for me. When, when I have feelings of judgment or, or really any, any feelings at all toward a client, it, um, I find it uh, professionally satisfying to contemplate that for a time and to think about what that means, what that means about my own life, my own childhood, and what that means about the client's material as well and how our two psyches come together and create whatever is created between us and in that moment. And that this contemplation bears fruit, which, which often results in me being more empathic. And, and better able to contain a client's feelings, better able to not react impulsively from a place of anger or judgment or rejection. So in regards, to, uh, in regards to Goodman's writing, I agree with him in that the novice therapist is particularly vulnerable to treatment failures. Uh, not vulnerable to having them per se, but vulnerable to the feelings about them. Uh, for instance, recently a supervisee of mine thought about quitting her practice altogether because she thought she pushed a client too hard and she was worried that the client would never return. Um, in the end, the client did return, but, but before she knew that, she cried thinking she failed her client and she thought she was not a good therapist and she thought she should just quit the whole profession. Um, I know her to be actually a very good therapist, so when she told me this, I was um, alarmed and... Uh, did what I could to help her with this feeling. You know, people might be surprised to learn that the, these feelings of incompetence are common, if not universal, to all therapists. Uh, therapy is such an ambiguous field with, with ambiguous measures for success and with, with many emotional minefields, and there's so much at stake. And, you know, therapists are alone often 
uh, with these feelings alone in that in that office trying to help and people rely on us for a lot and it's a lot of pressure so so this is one of the reasons that gets me up in the morning to to help these therapists cope with these feelings so they can do the noble work that they do you know what they do is is so important i think to our society and um, if there's anything i can do to support them then i'm going to do it that sounds a little extreme it's not like i'd do anything but you know i'll do what i can uh, anyway, from the perspective of Goodman, who uh, adopted Kernberg's, among others' perspectives, uh, the client recreated her early dyadic experience in the therapeutic relationship. Some people might recognize this language from other podcasts. This, some of this lingo is actually my own, so I'm sort of interweaving it here. But um, So she had internalized the experience of herself feeling weak and her parent being harmful. So um, her early experience of often feeling weak in the face of her of one of her parents being harmful, either narcissistically harmful or or just unavailable. This this dyad is is internalized, and this conflictual dyad became a part of herself, a frustrated part of herself, an ongoing conflictual part of herself. This dyad gets internalized and battles itself out in her psyche. Since the self has difficulty coping with inner conflictual dyads, the self unconsciously projects one side of this dyad onto the other and, while identifying with the other side, uh, interchangeably, usually. So she could either identify with the uh, weak side or the harmful side while projecting the other side onto someone else. So she might have been unconsciously projecting the weak, ineffective part of her perceived self onto me while identifying with the harmful, rejecting part herself. And as a result of our dynamic and her subtle socializations of me, this made me feel ineffective and made her feel guilty for rejecting me. And regarding my psyche, this might have engaged unresolved inner dyads within me, making it difficult for me to cope and remain empathic and holding of her experience. And, and in the end, this might have resulted in her becoming more depressed and more suicidal, which is another way of looking at the negative therapeutic reaction. So this point of view, this, this last point of view, is smack dab in the middle of how I see things. This is, a, this is consistent with contemporary, interpersonal, intersubjective, relational psychodynamic thought, which is my current bias. Lastly, in addition to these aforementioned perspectives, it's also possible that some other factor was at play. Um, perhaps her health was affecting her depression. Perhaps there was an unknown trigger, like... I don't know, just some kind of life event that just didn't come up in therapy or wasn't really identified as a trigger or something. It's, it's hard to know. Uh, perhaps she hid her depression from me at first, and it only seemed to get worse over time. Maybe she had always been that depressed and just lied to me in the beginning. Or not lied, but you know, hid it from me. Um, perhaps I made a mistake that I couldn't detect, and she didn't want to tell me that I hurt her feelings or bothered her in some way or, or harmed her in some way. I mean, that's awful to think about, but, but it's possible, right? It's, it's just unknown. The possibilities are endless. Um, and I enjoy the fact that I'll never know the answer. I enjoy the mystery of therapy. You know, it's such, it's such a life is a mystery and people are massive mysteries. <laughs> it's exciting to um, venture into the wilderness, not knowing where I'm going or where I've been. As long as I'm always striving to help people, and I'm always striving for clarification, it, it's satisfying to me. If I ever found the answer, I think I would move on to something else. I think that's, you know, if, if someone watched me as a therapist, uh, at times, 
people would say, uh, oh, you're a cognitive therapist, aren't you? They would, they would probably not suspect that I was a psychodynamic therapist from some of the work that I do. But the reason why I don't talk about cognitive therapy very often or I don't think about it very often is because it's so easy to understand. It's a very useful way of looking at people and it's a very useful style of therapy, but it's not complex. And, and there has, there's been writing on the topic, but not very interesting writing in my opinion and not very nuanced. It's very simple. And maybe that's why it's used a lot right now. It's because it's, it's easy to understand and, um, and it is useful. It's empirically, you know, found it's found to be useful, but psychodynamic and psychoanalytic philosophies are so complex and so weird and so interesting. And the history is so fascinating to me. That's, that's why I end up thinking about it a lot. Not because I think that psychodynamic therapy is better than cognitive therapy, but just, it's just more interesting. All right. Well, that does it for another episode of Psychology in Seattle. I hope you enjoyed it. Please, please take care of yourself. Get, get a good night's sleep. Um, floss. You know, flossing is important. Be good to yourself. Hang out with people that you like. Don't hang out with people you don't like. I know that sounds like a simple thing, but I know a lot of people who hang out with people they don't like because they feel obligated, you know? So in those ways, please take care of yourself because... You know, you're worth it. Also, um, if you like, you can go to our website, psychologyinseattle.com, and uh, you can go to the Support Us page. That'd be nice. Uh, I haven't seen anyone like our Facebook or donate in a while, so that'd be nice if some people did that. Also, uh, you can support the show by buying uh, my band's albums on iTunes. Uh, our, my band is called Bread Knife Incident. Oh, and, and if you like this sort of thing, you know, let me know. I'm not entirely confident that these sorts of podcasts are, are very interesting. Uh, I'm basically just sitting here yammering into the microphone by myself. So, and, and incidentally, sometimes people think I sound like I'm sad when, when I do podcasts by myself. I'm not sad. Uh, I, I think it's just a product of sitting in a room by myself talking into a microphone. I mean, just imagine you're sitting alone in a room and you're talking to yourself. You don't usually have the same liveliness to your language. So um, rest assured, I'm not sad. I'm quite happy today. It's sunny out. Spring is here. Life is good. So I'm cool. Thanks for caring, though. All right. That does it for this episode. Check you out later on the flip side. See ya.